It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. The show is made possible by patrons such as Nick, Sherry, Curtis, David, Stephen, Loretta, Janet, Lisa, Daniel, EZ, and Kristen. Thanks so very much for the support. I could not do the show without you. They became patrons to support the program. You can as well. Just go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Click the link that's at the top of the page there. Remember, while you're there, you can also subscribe. Uh, pay, uh, patrons get exclusive content and uh, you get merchandise as well. But we do our live streams every Thursday night. So if you become a patron, look forward to seeing you in there. We have a lot of fun doing that. Um, all righty. So the president gave his not State of the Union, State of the Union speech last night. Uh, it's technically like an address to the joint session of Congress, and I don't really care, but I'm going to call it the State of the Union. It's the same to me. It's a really long speech filled with a laundry list of uh, wish list uh, uh, wishes that the Democrats in this case want to see passed. Um, some bi- So I've got some highlights of that. I've got Tim Scott's response, which I thought he did a very good job. And those are really the responses are usually much more difficult to pull off. Usually because uh, the uh, the president is in this, uh, you know, he's in the chamber and you got all these people and they're all cheering and it's like just a, a different atmosphere. It's a different environment. And then, you know, cut away. And now you got some guy like, you know, in a room talking to a camera, uh, taking a gla- uh, taking a drink from the water bottle at a weird time, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and so they're usually and that's by the way, this is bipartisan is usually very difficult to pull off the response speech. But Tim Scott did a good job. And I suspect it's because not just he did a good job, but also because um, the uh, the scene in the Congress was different because they had so few members of Congress that were allowed in. Yeah, they restricted the audience size. They capped it. I'm going to get into that in a minute. Uh, All right. So the Associated Press reporting President Joe Biden returned to the U.S. Capitol, his home for more than three decades, and used his first address to Congress to make the case that the era of big government is back. He talked about crisis. He talked about opportunity. He talked about his first 100 days. While the uh, setting tonight is familiar, this gathering is just a little bit different. Reminder of the extraordinary times we're in. Throughout our history, presidents have come to this chamber to speak to Congress, to the nation, and to the world, to declare war, to celebrate peace, to announce new plans and possibilities. Tonight, I come to talk about crisis and opportunity, Mm. about rebuilding the nation, revitalizing our democracy, and winning the future for America. I stand here tonight, one day shy of the 100th day of my administration, 100 days since I took the oath of office and lifted my hand off our family Bible and inherited a nation, we all did, that was in crisis. The worst pandemic in a century. The worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. 
The worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Uh, okay, hang on a second. Is that about the the January 6th riots? You think that's the worst attack on our democracy? I, I mean, uh, granted, I haven't been you know, on the planet as long as Joe Biden has been. But I remember 9-11. I seem to recall some stories about Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Uh, Just just off the top of my head here. Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation, America is on the move again. On the move again. I don't really know, like, did we stop moving somehow? Turning peril into possibility, crisis to opportunity, setbacks into strength. We all know life can knock us down, but in America, we never, ever, ever stay down. Americans always get up. Today, that's what we're doing. America's rising anew, choosing hope over fear. Truth over lies and light over darkness. Is that what's happening? After 100 days of rescue and renewal, America is ready for a takeoff, in my view. We're working again, dreaming again, discovering again, and leading the world again. We have shown each other and the world that there's no quit in America. None. 100 days ago, America's house was on fire. We had to act. And thanks to the extraordinary leadership of Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Schumer, and the overwhelming support of the American people, Democrats, Independents, and Republicans, we did act. Together, we passed the American Rescue Plan. Wait, what? One of the most consequential rescue packages in American history. We're already seeing the results. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, wait. You did not have everyone's support on the American Rescue Plan. That did not pass with Republican support. That did not happen. Every Republican in the House and the Senate voted against that plan. But then again, I was reminded of a story that I came across. This was at the Hill some months ago, actually at the beginning of April, um, which might explain this lie that uh, Joe Biden told. Although, are we allowed to call them lies? Are they lies when Biden says them? I'm... Can I get a ruling on that from the PolitiFact people? Okay, uh, here's from The Hill. The White House wants to change how people perceive bipartisanship, arguing that if they put forward proposals that are backed by Republicans and independents in polling, then they should be seen as bipartisan, even if GOP lawmakers in Washington don't vote for them. See, this is another example of how the left likes to rewrite the language to accommodate their uh, current political arguments. So President Biden, you know, campaigned as a unity candidate and the GOP has been criticizing him for basically turning his back on any actual attempt at bipartisanship or unifying the lawmakers. But the White House has shrugged off this criticism, according to The Hill, vowing to take big actions at critical moments to help the economy and address inequality and other needs that it says have been ignored for too long. See, so here's the example, the latest, of how when Democrats say they want unity, what they are actually advocating is for your surrender, (laughs) if you disagree with them. What they mean by unity is 
uh, capitulation. You agree with them. And if you don't agree with them, well, they will act like uh, an autocratic dictator and they will force their will upon you. And that then becomes unity, you see. And that's democracy. That's how democracy works, which is actually a little... This is it's it is the old uh, axiom, you know, three wolves and a lamb voting on dinner. That's democracy, except I guess in this case it would be 51 wolves and 50 lambs voting on dinner. (laughs) So they have the slight majority in the Senate and they have what, like a six vote majority in the House. And so that's the margin. It is that close. And so if they can't get what they want and by the way. They do have the votes to get what they want, like in the House. So if they can't get what they want in the House, that's not a Republican thing. Oh, and by the way, if you can't get the votes in the House or the Senate, for that matter, doesn't that indicate that the policy is not actually one that engenders unity? I'm just spitballing here based off of my understanding of the English language and the word, uh, the way that words have been defined and used uh, for millennia. Okay, that's, again, bipartisanship when talking about legislation and uh, legislative goals. Bipartisanship has always historically meant one thing, and that is you have buy-in, you have support, you have votes from Republican lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers, lawmakers from both parties at the same time. That's the key, because I could say the same thing, by the way, about voter ID. That's a voter ID is a policy that has bipartisan support. Yet, for some reason, Democrats keep trying to get rid of it. (laughs) Um, Now, if you are trying to get rid of some of your old malfunctioning yard equipment, then you need to get over to General Equipment Rental. Okay, I did. They had a great big sale going on uh, the other day, their demo day, the Husqvarna demo day, scored an awesome deal on a Husqvarna weed eater and super excited to try this bad boy out. It's battery operated, which I prefer. I don't really like the mixing of the gas and the oil and all that, although now it's like super easy. I saw a bunch of guys that were there getting the gas oil mixtures. They they come in a can now, but if you prefer that, they've got those tools as well. They actually have more of those tools than the battery tools, I think. They've got tons of tools, though. For purchase, Husqvarna and Honda Outdoor Power Equipment. They're your official licensed uh, sales and service provider for both of those brands. Uh, But also, if you don't need the tool permanently, let's just say you're doing a job and you just need the tool for just that one job, well, then just rent a tool from them. And they've got, you know, large tools and equipment and they've got smaller ones. Whatever the project is, use general equipment rental to get the job done correctly and quickly. Get it done right. Go to General Equipment Rental. Go check out the website, generalrents.com. You can see the inventory, see all of the deals, and uh, they are located in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. General Equipment Rental, family-owned and operated for three generations. Website is generalrents.com. Tell them you heard it here on the podcast. I appreciate that. General Equipment Rental, and think outside your toolbox. So the Associated Press did a tally of the times, the number of times that Joe Biden said jobs during his uh, State of the Union, non-State of the Union address last night. And he said it 43 times. Here's what they write, quote, it's perhaps no surprise for an administration that has made beating back the pandemic and getting Americans back to work the central guideposts for success. Biden noted that the economy has gained some 1.3 million new jobs in the first few months of his administration. 
because that's what happened. You know, he took over and a hundred days within a hundred days, everybody was like, yes, let's start hiring now. It had nothing to do with like any of the, uh, you know, the, the structural advantages that were in place or the, any of the momentum, the growth that was occurring before the pandemic it had nothing to do with the easing of uh, governor's restrictions because of the pandemic, it had nothing to do with the discovery of the vaccine and the vaccinations that have opened up the economy. Like none of that has any impact. It's all about Biden. It was like, here I am, everybody. And everyone's like, let's make more jobs. So um, this is the most amount of jobs created uh, in the first 100 days of any presidency ever. And so it's obviously because of Joe. Uh, he quickly pivoted to the need to pass his American jobs plan if the country is going to sustain momentum and get back to the historically low levels of unemployment before the pandemic. See, this should this should raise some bit of, I don't know, curiosity among uh, the elite media. Don't you think? Why would you need to pass a jobs plan if you're creating the most amount of jobs in 100 days without it? Right. You, you're seeing record job growth in the first 100 days because everybody loves Joe Biden. So why would you need a plan at all? Because Joe Biden has been elected to a four year term. That's like four years of 100 day plans. Like you could just have 100 days. You know, you got three of them per year. So let's do the math on that. Yeah, what, three per year times four is, you're going to have 12, 13 cycles of this, 14 cycles of this? You're going to, we're going to have more, we're going to have to just like take over other countries to import all of the workers necessary. That's how many jobs Joe Biden is going to make without an American jobs plan. But I am told we need to have the American jobs plan because we need to keep the momentum going. You see, that, that's, that's how that works. It's all about the momentum. Nobody's asking a question about this. This is kind of ridiculous. He makes the case for big government. In the past, according to the AP, in the past, presidents from both parties used similar speeches to talk about the limits of government. Joe Biden went in the opposite direction, offering a resounding embrace of the role Washington can play in improving our lives. Jennifer Van Lahr at uh, redstate.com, she has a piece talking about where she starts off talking about a, a friend of hers who uh, told her during a lunch date earlier this week, quote, why is anybody really surprised about what Biden is doing? Because he's doing exactly what we all told them he would do if he won the election. <laughs> Jennifer Van Lahr goes on to note, the only thing somewhat surprising is the speed at which he's enacting his or Jill's or Kamala's totalitarian agenda. Since many of the individual pieces of the Democratic Party's wish lists of brutal legislation can't pass on their own, uh, the hologram, which is what she calls Joe Biden, he's a hologram, <laughs> decided to roll them into a massive infrastructure bill because everything is infrastructure. That's why, by the way, if you see people making jokes about, uh, you know, podcasting is infrastructure. It's because they keep putting all of these things, these items on their wish list. They keep putting it into an infrastructure bill because they're trying to do the again. This is what they've done, you know, for years in Congress. Now is you make these massive bills and you put everything in it and then you force people to vote for all of this stuff. And then they get, you know, the, the argument, the deniability. Well, I wasn't voting for that one thing that I didn't like. I was voting for all the good things that were in it. The bill faces a tough road in the House where Democrats can only lose two votes. 
and still pass a bill without GOP support, making both extremists like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and centrists in swing districts extremely powerful in the debate. Its status in the Senate, should it even get there, is also on extremely shaky ground thanks to, quote, moderates like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona and because uh, of the Jim Crow remnant, the filibuster. Right. That's the is. <laughs> right. It was it was clear the nation needed an energetic primetime speech to Congress from that picture of vim and vigor, Joe Biden to rally support for infrastructure and a few other key but struggling bills. I watched the speech. I'm not going to go over the entire laundry list of them. I will give you a couple of highlights. For example, he shamed people who did not want to get vaccinated, wagging his finger in our faces and demanding that we get vaccinated now. After I promised we'd get 100 million COVID-19 vaccine shots into people's arms in 100 days, We will have provided over 220 million COVID shots in those 100 days. Thanks to all the help of all of you. We're marshalling, with your help, everyone's help, we're marshalling every federal resource. We've gotten vaccines in nearly 40,000 pharmacies and over 700 community health centers where the poorest of the poor can be reached. We're setting up community vaccination sites, developing mobile units to get to hard-to-reach communities. Today, 90 percent of Americans now live within five miles of a vaccination site. Wait, what? Hmm. Everyone over the age of 16, everyone is now eligible to get vaccinated right now, right away. Go get vaccinated, America. Do it. Go and get the vaccination. They're available. Do it. So, okay, that the line that he made there uh, uh, about the five miles, that's an interesting line. You know why? Mandy Cohen said it at the press briefing the day before. Uh, Or sorry, no, yesterday. The same day. Yeah, the same day. She said the exact same line. During the governor's COVID briefing, where he was talking about how, you know, the you got to have two thirds of adults vaccinated with at least one of the doses um, uh, or, or else, uh, you know, we're not going to get summer back. Right. Um, Mandy Cohen, in touting the metrics and how successful they have been, she said, all of us live within five miles of a vaccination site. Hmm. Interesting. Another example Governor Roy Cooper takes his marching orders from this White House. It's very clear. This is, I think, the third example now. I maybe should, I'm going to go back and tally them. But this, that is a direct quote from Cohen and from Joe Biden. They've got the same talking points. I'm sure, wait, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, just a coincidence. Uh, it is no coincidence that uh, you would find old Grouch's military surplus items in my possession. Okay, it's no coincidence, um, because Old Grouch's military surplus has items for everybody. They do, like front, like storage solutions, like um, ammo cans. They're like 
a cool way to store stuff, um, either, um, you know, in the garage or in your work vehicle or whatever in the truck. Uh, or, you know, you can put it behind you um, as, a, you know, as a prop in your Zoom meetings. Um <laughs> They've also got, look, he can also hook you up with gun accessories. Okay, so if you are one of uh, the record number of new gun owners, let Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus help outfit you with some of the essential accessories like slings, magazine pouches, all sorts of other items. Uh, He's also got you know, first aid kits, he's got backpacks, he's got uh, outdoor gear. So if you're a, a camper or a hunter, you like to go fishing, you go hiking, whatever the case is, if you spend time outdoors, he's got stuff for you that really everybody, every outdoorsman needs some of these uh, items. You got to be prepared for emergencies. Go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde on Main Street. Shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and 24-7, always on at oldgrouch.com that's oldgrouch.com now this um this pitch for everybody to get vaccinated jennifer van lar at redstate.com makes a very good point why just looking at the scene looking at this speech last night why the three people in the video that you're watching when he's making these comments, you've got, you know, Joe Biden in the front and then you got Speaker Pelosi behind him on one side and you have Vice President Harris on the other side of him. And they're both wearing masks the whole time. All three of those people have been vaccinated. <laughs> right. The chamber was nearly empty due to the social distancing requirements. Why are those necessary, given that all of the members have either had COVID or have been vaccinated? Why are they still acting as if there is this, you know, life-threatening risk? What's going on there? By the way, Joe Biden apparently handpicked the audience for his speech to this to the joint session in a decision that Republicans condemned as partisan. This by Jordan Davidson at thefederalist.com. The president reportedly limited the number of people who could be in the House chamber for his first formal address uh, to 200 people. Pre-screened individuals, including lawmakers, Supreme Court justices, cabinet members and others invited by Biden and the first lady. So it was like doing the seating chart at the wedding. (laughs) This is what they went through. While many lawmakers are already vaccinated against the virus. The administration reportedly limited the capacity due to COVID-19 protocols and forced some lawmakers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as well as White House staff, forced them all to stay home. Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas said uh, the speaker even brought a member with COVID into the House chamber to ensure that she had enough votes to be reelected as Speaker of the House. But she now claims to want to protect everybody from that same virus. (laughs) This is a great point, right? Like she needed the votes for Speaker of the House. And so she allowed people with COVID to come in and cast the votes. A majority of us, he says, with immunity to COVID were not invited. Also, Marco Rubio said, quote, it's interesting that when it came to like coming together to impeach Donald Trump for the second time after he was already out of office, they put 100 senators in the same room sitting just inches apart for hours at a time over five or six days. Apparently, COVID was not an issue then, but it is now, of course, for something like this. Well, we can't have that many people in a room sitting next to each other. Gomert suggested that Biden and his team 
might fear congressional reaction to this administration's radical, divisive socialist agenda, which is why they chose only specific people to sit in on the speech. Yeah, absolutely. They're managing. This is stagecraft. They're right. They're managing who's in the audience. It's no different than what Governor Cooper does with his press conferences. That's all managed. It's one of the like, this is the thing during times of, quote, emergency. GovCo gets to do all sorts of new and exciting things to try to restrict people and control people. And after the emergency is over, a lot of times GovCo and the people who pull the levers, they have they have a bit of a problem giving up that power. You know, once they get a taste of it. Oh, it's so sweet. Wait a minute. So I can. I can screen all of these reporters and only take questions from the ones that I know are not going to risk their status and station. They're not going to risk access to getting into future press conference calls. So they're not going to ask questions that are too difficult. And, you know, if maybe one of them does ask a tough question or an embarrassing type of a question, you know, maybe I put them on timeout for a little while. Just let them know. Just to let them know. And then if they ask you about it they say hey hey why am i getting denied access now when i wasn't before and except you know i asked this one question and now i can't get through you just say well you know we're trying to make sure that everybody gets a chance to ask questions you see we're we're trying to be democratic about all of this we're not the autocrats which was a big theme of joe biden's speech this positioning of autocrats versus uh democracies right um, the AP, here it is, uh, to, 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 he says, we have to prove democracy still works, that our government still works and can deliver for the people. It was a familiar refrain for Joe Biden, who has sounded an alarm about the nation's divisions for years. But the urgency spiked after January 6th. You see, Joe Biden has been all about the unity all these years. He's been the canary in the coal mine. In fact, that's been his uh, his nickname. They call him Canary. They do. Sometimes just coal mine. Um, the appeal for unity appeared unlikely to sway many minds in Congress. I love the way the AP frames this. You know, Joe Biden is, you know, making this pitch for unity. Please, please be unified, everybody. And uh, I don't know if it's going to work because of those Republicans. You know, it's unlikely to sway many of their minds. Well, because he's not asking for unity towards a middle ground. He's asking for, quote, unity by them abandoning their principles and their positions and doing what he wants them to do. Vice President Harris and I met regularly in the Oval Office with Democrats and Republicans and discussed the jobs plan. And I applaud a group of Republican senators who just put forward their own proposal. So let's get to work. I wanted to lay out before the Congress my plan before we got into the deep discussions. I'd like to meet with those who have ideas that are different, they think are better. I welcome those ideas. But the rest of the world is not waiting for us. I just want to be clear. From my perspective, doing nothing is not an option. Look. We can't be so busy competing with one another that we forget the competition that we have with the rest of the world to win the 21st century. Secretary Blinken can tell you I spent a lot of time with President Xi. Traveled over 17,000 miles with him. Spent, they tell me, over 24 hours in private discussions with him. 
when he called to congratulate him. We had a two-hour discussion. He's deadly earnest about becoming the most significant, consequential nation in the world. He and others, autocrats, think that democracy can't compete in the 21st century with autocracies. It takes too long to get consensus. To win that competition for the future, in my view, we also need to make a once-in-a-generation investment in our families and our children. That's why I've introduced the American Families Plan tonight. Now, that was an odd pivot, I think, <laughs> to go from uh, yeah, comparing you know, autocratic regimes with democratic regimes and we're better and they want global domination and all of this. And hey, how about the Family Plan Act? <laughs> I I don't get it. Look, but that is one example. This this uh, Family Plan Act is one example of an item that uh, would be required uh, or, or the, fil- the, the abandonment of the filibuster would be required in order to enact, much like others that I've already talked about. you got the PRO Act as well, H.R. 1. There are all these different uh, Democratic bills that they want to see passed, but they don't have the, the Democratic power yet to pass them. So they're trying to find sneaky ways to do so, like via the infrastructure bill. Everything is infrastructure, right? Which I would submit tends to be more autocratic don't you sure it does i find it interesting that uh like there was a guy uh he used to work for i think harry reed or uh maybe did work for reed now he works for schumer i forget jettleson i think is his name adam jettleson anyway he was on twitter last night i saw and he was like oh look at this is awesome biden is you know he's pitching all of these items that won't pass without a filibuster getting blown up you got to blow up the filibuster to get this stuff done so what does that tell you, everybody? And so they're looking at they they heard what Joe Biden said and they heard a dog whistle, if you will, for support for dismantling the filibuster to going to a straight up 50 plus one vote over the opposition. That's all. So that that's what they're going to do. They are looking to rule. Right. They want to have a 50 plus one majority be the end all be all. That's it. As long as we got 51 votes over the 50, we're going to institute structural changes in America to preserve our seat of power forever. That's the play here, which is, again, like the projection that occurs in politics at this level. Like you can see it like they're telling you what they're willing to do. And they're framing it as it's like, we're the defenders of the democracy, while, you know, China and those Republicans, they're the defenders of the autocratic regimes. Meanwhile, they go about behaving like an autocratic regime. Um, He insinuated, this is from the National Review's uh, editors, Joe Biden insinuated that the 10-year ban on assault weapons had reduced the murder rate in the U.S., something neither careful studies nor a casual look at the trends actually supports. He pretended that the Trump administration had ended successful efforts to control migration across the southern border, 
That is a brazen inversion of the truth. He claimed that the country supports federal legislation that would, among other things, ban states from verifying voters who they say they are. But poll after poll says otherwise. He promised that Medicare could save hundreds of billions of dollars by cracking down on drug makers. But that is not according to the Congressional Budget Office. It's the exact opposite. Biden conjured a world in which there was no danger from unprecedented deficit spending, no possible adverse consequences from raising taxes on corporations and rich people, no spike in violent crime that needs attending to, and no foreign threats that demand of us more than platitudes about leadership. Even as he proposed one of the most radically left policy agendas in American history, he continues to feign eagerness to work with Republicans, right? The implication also that a COVID recovery that he has done little to cause is bullying him while his agenda threatens to pull him down. Okay, that's what's going on here. He's claiming credit for all of these things. He's advancing a far left agenda while pretending to be a moderate middle of the road Reagan-esque kind of Democrat. But don't call them lies. Lies are what Donald Trump told and only Donald Trump told, apparently. Here's no lie. Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com. Go to the website, check out the inventory, or walk into any of their four locations in Asheville, in Hendersonville, the new one in Arden. Uh, That one is on Airport Road. It's in the IHOP Shopping Center. Go check out the new place. And uh, before these deals run out, um, so, uh, as always, you know, check the store for the details, because by the time you're listening to this podcast, uh, you know, the, the deals may have run their course. So make sure you check the website, mattressmanstores.com. But um, you can get a king for the price of a queen, queen for the price of a twin. It's a free upgrade at Mattressman. Mattressmanstores.com, an exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection, inspired by our local landmark, the Biltmore State, made by Restonic. Get free local five-star delivery service, a 120-day comfort guarantee for all as well. They do ship nationwide, so if you're listening to the show outside of the Asheville area, never fear, they will get the mattress to you. And remember, take advantage of their flexible financing options like no interest for two years. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com. Support the businesses that support this show. I appreciate that. Buy local and sleep better. So this National Review uh, editorial that I just uh, ran down, it's called Biden's Dishonest Sales Pitch. Right. And and this is this is what Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, it's one of the things he was getting at. He actually was at a... Uh, was this a New Hampshire uh, conservative leaders and activists forum or something going on? Anyway, New Hampshire, which I wonder why he was in New Hampshire. Hmm. Um, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, according to the New Hampshire Journal, was explicit about what his party strategy should be today. Namely, take the fight to Joe Biden. Here's what Chris Christie said, quote, Biden has lied about the voting bill and about Georgia Uh, And I want everybody to understand this. The motivation for doing this is to stoke racial divisions in our country to his political benefit. We need to say that out loud and directly that that is exactly what he's doing. He absolutely is. He absolutely is. Christie, whose allies floated a potential run for president last week. (gasps) No. Took offense with Biden's new infrastructure package as well, which he simply sees as a way for the government to line the pockets of Democrats supporting unions. He said, quote, 
There's a $2.25 trillion infrastructure bill under the most generous definition of infrastructure the American people understand. Only 24% of that is for infrastructure. <laughs> and $400 billion is to uh, increase pay to home health care workers, but only if they join a union, only if it's a unionized job. That's an agenda that's got nothing to do with infrastructure and has absolutely everything to do with increasing the power of unions in this country who give over 95% of their money to the Democratic Party. It is a money laundering operation. This is why Democrats are going to blow up every norm they can in order to, what, D.C. statehood, right? I'm surprised they're not talking about changing the uh, the Electoral College as well, packing the Supreme Court, right? All of these things are in service to what? Getting themselves more power. Let me get to... Um, Hang on a second. Let me get to this last uh, clip. This is the close of Biden's speech. Here. And as we gather here tonight, the image of a violent mob assaulting this capital, desecrating our democracy, remain vivid in all our minds. Lives were put at risk, many of your lives. Lives were lost. Extraordinary courage was summoned. The insurrection was an existential crisis, a test of whether our democracy could survive, and it did. But the struggle is far from over. The question of whether our democracy will long endure is both ancient and urgent. As old as our republic, still vital today. Can our democracy deliver on its promise that all of us, created equal in the image of God, had a chance to lead lives of dignity, respect, and possibility? Can our democracy deliver the most, to the most pressing needs of our people? Can our democracy overcome the lies, anger, hate, and fears that have pulled us apart? America's adversaries, the autocrats of the world, are betting we can't. And I promise you they're betting we can't. They believe we're too full of anger and division and rage. They look at the images of the mob that assaulted the Capitol as proof that the sun is setting on American democracy. But they're wrong. You know it. I know it. But we have to prove them wrong. We have to prove democracy still works, that our government still works, and we can deliver for our people. In our first 100 days together, we've acted to restore people's faith in democracy to deliver. We're vaccinating the nation. We're creating hundreds of thousands of new jobs, opening doors of opportunity, guaranteeing some more fairness and justice. That's the essence of America. That's democracy in action. Our Constitution opens with the words, as trite as it sounds, we the people. Well, it's time to remember that we, the people, are the government, you and I, not some force in a distant capital, not some powerful force that we have no control over. It's us. It's we, the people. In another era, when our democracy was tested, Franklin Roosevelt reminded us in America, we do our part. We all do our part. That's all I'm asking that we do our part, all of us. And if we do that, we will meet the center challenge of the age by proving that democracy is durable and strong. Autocrats will not win the future. We will. America will. And the future belongs to America. As I stand here tonight before you in a new and vital hour of life and democracy of our nation, and I can say with absolute confidence, I have never been more confident or optimistic about America, not because I'm president, because of what's happening with the American people. 
We've stared into the abyss of insurrection and autocracy, pandemic and pain, and we, the people, did not flinch. At the very moment our adversaries were certain we'd pull apart and fail, we came together, we united. With light and hope, we summoned a new strength, new resolve to position us to win the competition of the 21st century. On our way to a union more perfect, more prosperous, and more just, as one people, one nation, and one America. Folks, as I told every world leader I've ever met with over the years, it's never, ever, ever been a good bet to bet against America, and it still isn't. We're the United States of America. There is not a single thing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. We can do whatever we set our minds to if we do it together. So let's begin to get together. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you for your patience. All right, so this is the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde approach to uh, governing that Joe Biden has been exhibiting, right? Calls for unity, and this, this uh, you know, this sweeping rhetoric, much like Obama used to deliver, like, we're rolling this together, no red states, no blue states, like, we're all just the United States, and you're like, yeah, I could get on board with that, and they're like, so let's do the PRO Act, let's do HR1 and nationalize all the elections, and we're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, let's blow up the filibuster! Which, by the way, there was an interesting piece uh, at the Washington Post a few weeks back by Greg Sargent. And he writes a uh, was it a column called The Plumb Line or something like that. And um, the headline was, every Democrat who fears the filibuster reform should read these two new works. And he notes the profound possibilities of this moment, but also the danger that those possibilities will slip away. Two new works. Help us make sense of this time of extraordinary ferment. There's a new book on the creation of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and a new academic paper that clarifies the structural disadvantages that Democrats and progressives face in our current system. See, it's systemic anti-progressivism. Oh, see that? And then it, doesn't that work very well for them? Yes, it's it's institutional. It's It's foundational. It's structural. That's the cards are stacked against them. Journalist... Jonathan Cohn's New History of the Affordable Care Act's Passage talks about, you know, Democrats initially needing 60 Senate votes for the bill to pass in 09, and they repeatedly compromised uh, to uh, and, and made it, you know, less progressive in order to keep the support of conservative Democrats. And that is true, by the way. I remember it. Most of the Affordable Care Act's inadequacies trace back directly to compromises Obama and the Democratic leaders made because they had to get 60 votes. That's what Cohn says. Okay, so that's the first piece. But more importantly, here's the academic paper. 11 years after the bill's passage in the aftermath of a major crisis, the pandemic, Democrats are now thinking more seriously about how structural factors could impede a sufficient national response to an even deeper one. Like, what if there was an even worse pandemic? As such, every Democrat entertaining those debates should read this new paper on structural biases in constitutional design by law professors Jonathan S. Gould and David E. Posen. They craft, get this, a new understanding of how structural constitutional factors can bias governmental outcomes. Spoiler alert. 
This is not a new understanding, okay? This might be new for progressives, not a new understanding for conservatives, okay? That there's actual structural factors, okay, that, um, that limit one governing ideology. And that governing ideology is what? Progressivism. Right. There are, in fact, structural restraints. Here's what he says. The findings are stark. They find that the multiple veto points in the legislative process, like the supermajority needed against the filibuster or congressional rules that empower committees to kill legislation, that these veto points systematically work against Democrats. Oh, well, how is that possible? Did the founding fathers hate Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi? They like, did they hate them? How, how did they know that, that this would hamper their efforts? Ah, here we go. Because the Democratic Party, this is why they are hamstrung, is because the Democratic Party, quote, generally harbors more legislative ambition. <laughs> right. So <laughs> precisely. Right. Precisely. Veto points that increase the difficulty of enacting legislation have come to impede the policy aspirations of Democrats more than those of Republicans. The executive branch, they find, is riddled with procedural features that systematically hamper the ability of agencies to regulate. And they detect a similar bias, electoral bias. Two senators representing each state, regardless of population advantages, now that 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 gives one party uh, that overperforms in small states an advantage. Okay, what's more, the reliance on single-member congressional districts that benefits the party that overperforms in sparsely populated areas and works against the party that wastes more votes in concentrated ones. And in some cases, a shift in the party's coalitions, yes, could undo those biases. But you know, for now, our intersection of constitutional design and political geography has produced systematic structural biases for the party that is strongest in small states. And right now, that's the GOP. Yeah, so um, the Washington Post <laughs> columnist Greg Sargent uh, is, uh, this is breaking news here, um, has now discovered the Constitution is in fact geared towards limiting government and frustrating those who, what do they call it, harbor more legislative ambition. This is a big day for the Washington Post. Let me get to uh, the uh, some of the response from Senator Tim Scott. First, let me get to uh, tell you about Rowena Patton, because if you're trying to get to the mountains or maybe you're trying to get out, uh, you need to buy or sell a house. Rowena Patton is the person to call. She and her all-star powerhouse team put them to work for you. They get the house sold fast and for more money. They got buyers lined up. They have homes in all price points, by the way, as well. The phone number is 828-333-4483. That's 828-333-4483. The website is mountainhomehunt.com. Give her a call and then start packing. So here is some of the audio from Senator Tim Scott, who gave the response to the president's, don't call it State of the Union, State of the Union speech. His speech was full of good words, but President Biden promised you a specific kind of leadership. He promised to unite a nation, to lower the temperature to govern for all Americans, no matter how we voted. This was the pitch. You just heard it again. But our nation is starving for more than empty platitudes. We need policies and progress that brings us closer together. But three months in, the actions of the president and his party are pulling us further and further apart. 
I won't waste your time with finger pointing or partisan bickering. You can get that on TV anytime you want. I want to have an honest conversation about common sense and common ground, about this feeling that our nation is sliding off its shared foundation and how we move forward together. Growing up, I never dreamed I would be standing here tonight. When I was a kid, my parents divorced. My mother, my brother, and I moved in with my grandparents, three of us sharing one bedroom. I was disillusioned and angry, and I nearly failed out of school, but I was blessed. First with a praying mama. And, and let me say this to the single mothers out there who are working their tails off, working hard, trying to make the ends meet, wondering if it's worth it. You can bet it is. God bless your amazing effort on part of your kids. I was also blessed by a Chick-fil-A operator, John Moniz. And finally, with a string of opportunities that are only possible here in America. This past year, I've watched COVID attack every rung of the ladder that helped me up. So many families have lost parents and grandparents too early. So many small businesses have gone under. Becoming a Christian transformed my life, but for months, too many churches were shut down. Most of all, I'm saddened that millions of kids have lost a year of learning when they could not afford to lose a single day. Locking vulnerable kids out of the classroom is locking adults out of their future. Our public schools should have reopened months ago. Other countries did. Private and religious schools did. Science has shown for months that schools are safe. But too often, powerful grown-ups set science aside and kids like me were left behind. The clearest case I've seen for school choice in our lifetimes, because we know that education is the closest thing to magic in America. Last year, under Republican leadership, we passed five bipartisan COVID packages. Congress supported our schools, our hospitals, saved our economy, and funded Operation Warp Speed, delivering vaccines in record time. All five bills got 90, 90 votes in the Senate. Common sense found common ground. In February, Republicans told President Biden we wanted to keep working together to finish this fight. But Democrats wanted to go it alone. They spent almost $2 trillion on a partisan bill that the White House bragged was the most liberal bill in American history. Only 1% went to vaccinations, no requirement to reopen schools promptly. COVID brought Congress together five times. This administration pushed us apart. All right, Senator Scott then went on to discuss race. Nowhere do we need common ground more desperately than in our discussions of race. I have experienced the pain of discrimination. I know what it feels like to be pulled over for no reason, to be followed around the store while I'm shopping. I remember every morning at the kitchen table, my grandfather would open the newspaper and read it, I thought. But later I realized he had never learned to read it. He just wanted to set the right example. I've also experienced a different kind of intolerance. 
I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals. Just last week, a national newspaper suggested my family's poverty was actually privilege. Because a relative owned land generations before my time. Believe me, I know firsthand our healing is not finished. In 2015, after the shooting of Walter Scott, I wrote a bill to fund body cameras. Last year, after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I built an even bigger police reform proposal. But my Democratic colleagues blocked it. I extended an olive branch. I offered amendments, but Democrats used a filibuster to block the debate from even happening. My friends across the aisle seemed to want the issue more than they wanted a solution. But I'm still working. I'm hopeful that this will be different. When America comes together, we've made tremendous progress, but powerful forces want to pull us apart. A hundred years ago, kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic. And if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all. By doubling down on the divisions, we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. Now, following the speech from Tim Scott, the term Uncle Tim trended on Twitter, which, by the way, Twitter could have taken down had they wanted to. Yeah, this this trended as left wing users flooded the website with the racial slur. His rhetoric infuriated some progressives, says David Rutz at Fox News, uh, and Twitter placed Uncle Tim on its trending topics as more and more tweets relayed the insulting, racially charged play on his name. And among them was former MSNBC host Toure Neblet. So in order to prove that America is racist, the left had to engage in racist behavior, I guess. It's for our own good, you see. That's a wrap for the episode. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Think about becoming a patron. Go to the Pete Callender Show.com and subscribe. Talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.